Happy, happy Sunday. The rest of us can take out our Bibles, right? Whichever translation you might be reading, they'll have an English Standard Version up here. Uh, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke lately, which has been both awesome and somewhat terrifying for me to prepare because I'm like always wondering, like, when am I going to not have something to say? Like, when will I just read this and be like, and that, that's what Jesus did. That, that's what happened. And then, like, that'd be the end of the sermon, which would be all right, because the reading of the scripture is powerful and mighty, right? It still changes and transforms our hearts. And uh, per usual, I have a whole bunch to say this morning anyway from the rest of the Bible. So uh, have you ever been a huge fan of a book or a movie, right? Where like you've maybe really connected with a, a main character. And even though they're a fictional character and you know that, uh, you would like want to be their friend, right? If they were real, right? Have you ever like had that experience or that uh, even though they're made up, like you are rooting for the character, you are proud of them when they do something brave or self-sacrificing or uh, you're like full of joy when they fall in love, right? Or something like that. And then, uh, or you authentically grieve this made up character when they might die, right? Like that's, that's like heartbreaking. It's this weird thing that we have the ability as humans in our imagination and capacity to connect with something that we know isn't real. And, and in our society, there's actually opportunity to then uh, hear from the author or the screenwriter or the director who is like presenting these characters to us where uh, they might either be uh, sharing in an interview or being at like Comic-Con at like on some panel where they're telling you about what their character was thinking in some pivotal moment of the, of the story that was never filmed or written down. Or, or like they tell you, oh yeah, that's what happened to the character after the story. And, or, or like they say, actually no, the character never really, this is what motivated the character really. And then like you find something out about this character you really liked, that you're like, oh. I don't really like that. And, and, then like, and then people in our society like have to wrestle with this reality of like, well, I really liked this character, but now the author or the director has kind of changed who I thought they were. And so you either have the option of just like pretending that's not the case, or some fans go far enough to actually write something called fan fiction. All right, and, and just because I'm saying this doesn't mean like I've got documents on my laptop of fan fiction, just so you're aware. Like, I don't, I don't. But I think it's all good for people to do that if they want, right? But people will write fan fiction where they pretend they'll write a story about, oh, this is what the character really was thinking, or this is what their childhood was like, or this is what it would be like if they did get, you know, married to the character that they loved the whole time, or they will end up happily ever after. Right? And, and so, like, people literally will then post on the internet, like, entire fan fiction series about these characters that maybe we all know because they either don't like what the author has done with them or they want there to be more. Right? They want there to be more about this character that they love. But even though authors or directors might do things with characters that we feel connected to, uh, that we then don't like what they did with them, the author kind of has the right to do that, right? Like the author wrote the story. The author wrote this character. They can kind of do what they want with this character. They can let us know what motivates that character. And so this kind of analogy is, I think, going to be helpful for us as we're reading in, in Luke chapter 4 today. Uh, so track with me. I'll do the best I can. So Luke chapter 4, 
we're reading about Jesus, all right? We, we love Jesus here. If you don't yet, we still love you. So this is going to be good. So investigate these scriptures with me. Luke chapter 4, verse 31 says this, And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. All right, so he's teaching on the, the Saturday, right? The seventh day of the week, the Sabbath that the Jews had honored before the Lord. And verse 32, it says, And they, the people, were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. All right? Uh, in fact, in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus' uh, popular Sermon on the Mount through chapters 5 and 7, Matthew says this in verse 28. He says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so the way Jesus taught, he did it in this interesting way where he did it with authority. It was different than the way other people taught about the Bible. It was different than the way other people studied the Bible and weighed out the scriptures because Jesus, for one, would teach the Bible as though it were true. Okay, Jesus taught the Bible as though it were true. Jesus didn't have to speculate what the kingdom of heaven was like. He didn't have to speculate what creation was like. He didn't have to try to like imagine uh, right, what reality is about and what God the Father is all about. He was there. He was present. right? He was uh, active and at work in those moments in history. So he didn't have to be like, oh man, that's too bad Moses didn't write down more for us. No, Jesus was just like, hey, this is what happened. Right? He gave us clarity where we had questions. He right, cleared up any confusion that we had. He clearly showed us, right? he was the image of the invisible God, a perfect representation of the Father to us. And so when Jesus taught, he taught with authority, not as the scribe. And so even my own teaching from the Bible, or when other people teach from this platform, we sometimes, right, know that we have to, like, speculate. We go into areas where it's like, well, the Bible actually didn't say, and I usually just try to avoid speculation altogether, or when uh, there might be a variety of opinions on the same type of verses, right, we might be like, well, some Christians believe this, some believe that, and, and the Bible's not 100% clear in this way, right? So there's still always a little bit of speculation, but when it comes to things that the Bible is clear on, Right? Hopefully, we're a church that can preach and teach with authority because that's the way that Jesus taught. And that's, I think, an attractive thing. Okay? And, and one of the reasons Jesus was able to do that is because he can kind of claim part authorship of the Bible. Right? That Jesus is a member of the Trinity, one of, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Word that was with God and was God from the beginning. And that the Holy Spirit inspired the humans, right, the 40 authors of the Bible, to write down the Word of God. That the Bible, the Scriptures, are actually God-breathed, the Bible tells us. So Jesus, when he teaches about the Scripture, he could teach with authority because he's, he's like the author, right? And so he can tell us and let us know what this stuff is about. And if I don't like, which that happens, because our flesh will oftentimes be offended with the things that Jesus might say, right? And when that happens, now I've got a choice. Am I going to make up my own version, right? Am I going to write fan fiction about what I would like God to be like, right? Or am I going to believe Jesus, the author, 
right? The author of the scriptures, the creator of this world, right? The one who's the author and finisher of our faith, right? Are we going to believe Jesus? And I like playing with this idea between authority and author because uh, I'm not a linguist. I'll trust some of our experts here, but the, the words are linked. They come from this word octor, which literally means to be an author or creator, all right? And so Jesus spoke and taught with authority because he wrote the scriptures. He created the universe that we find ourselves in. And so teaching was one of the main things that Jesus came to do in his earthly ministry. And you might be like, well, Jesus, like, couldn't you just like send, you know, Moses or one of your prophets or some of the priests, like, couldn't they have just done the same thing? But teaching is one of the things that Jesus came to do on this earth. It's one of the things he was called to do. And teaching the truth of God's word is so powerful to produce life and change in us to bring about a a clear understanding about what God is like, who we are, and understanding what this world and this life is all about. And in fact, one of the most loving things Jesus does is teach. In fact, in uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 34, my guy's in the back, uh, it says this, that one time he, he went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. And oftentimes when you read in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion, it's usually referring to moments in which he's like, has compassion on the sick and he heals them. Or has compassion on someone who's oppressed by a demon and he casts the demon out. But notice in this moment, in this passage, it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Right? One of the most loving things that Jesus does is teach is, is proclaim the truth of God's word to us. That's one of our deepest needs as humans. Because in doing so, Jesus corrects false doctrine. He brings clarity where there was confusion. He protects the people he loves from believing lies. All right? And that's something that Jesus did, does. Jesus loved people in doing so because he cares for us. Because he cares for us. And I would suggest that when Jesus saw a crowd of people like this, the thing he realized they most needed, even more than healing, even more than demons cast out, was they needed instruction in truth. Because deception is more destructive than disease. All right? Because even if a person is healed, they might then spend the rest of their healthy days believing a lie and pursuing things that are bringing about destruction and harm to themselves and to others. Right? So Jesus, right, would, would realign our human hearts to the truth, that we would understand and live in light of the truth. Right? Jesus knew that believing a lie has the potential to destroy us. It has the potential to destroy us. That, right, people will spend their energy worshiping false gods. They'll sadly live in a lifestyle of sin, causing harm to themselves. And worst of all, they may remain ignorant of the God who loves them and wants to be with them forever, right? And so, so Jesus proclaimed truth because he loved people. And actually, you can understand that mission when held in contrast to the one who is opposed to Jesus' mission, which is Satan, 
all right, who Jesus actually says is the father of lies. And so you can kind of understand in contrast Jesus' mission when we realize the primary means of attack that the enemy would bring against the people that God so dearly loves. In John chapter 8, uh, verse 44, Jesus says something that's uh, not flattering. Uh, he said, wow, Jesus, wow, Jesus, look at this. John chapter 8, verse 44, uh, you are of your father, the devil. Uh, he's talking to specific people in this moment who refused to acknowledge their need to repent, who were maybe on the outside living a life that appeared righteous, but on the inside were hiding sin. And so uh, you're of your father, the devil, Jesus says. That, that won't make it in my fan fiction as far as like the default state of the human heart. I don't know about you guys. I'm not a, I don't really like that one, but it's, it's sadly true. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, which I think is so interesting, right? Because uh, oftentimes we might imagine critically someone who is like a teacher's pet of like, oh, you just want to keep the teacher happy. Right? And like we like look down on that person or like the, the law-keeping kid in a family of like that kid's just some brat that like always does the right thing and like rats out their brothers or, okay, I'm not, or maybe that's getting a little too close to home. Uh, but, but right, like people critique someone who is just like all about just, oh, you're just, or you're just like your dad, right? You're just like your father isn't a, a very pleasant thing to say to someone in most cases. Uh, but... Jesus is saying this, that even those who would appear to be most rebellious of like this idea of like, I'm, you know, against authority or whatever, right? Like even these individuals, they're actually like daddy's boys who are doing exactly what their father, the devil, would want them to do, right? And so it's like this interesting idea of like, wow, I kind of viewed that person as like this rebellious anti-authority person when in reality, all of their will is caught up in pleasing this father, the devil, all right, which is crazy, right? And then he says this, he talks about the character of, of the devil. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Some translations actually say that lying is his native language, right, which is an interesting idea, okay? Verse 45, he says, but, I, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? And so we see here that the enemy has had this ancient tactic to deceive humanity, right? He's been doing it from the beginning. He tells lies, and sadly, many have followed him, believing those lies, or we, in the default state of humanity, we take on the characteristics of our father, even though we don't want to, right? That by default, humans, right, are murderers at heart, or lying, or trying to present themselves only in good light, right? That we act just like him. And in fact, uh, the word devil, I know sometimes people like disconnect from that of like this uh, silly, amusing idea of some right devil with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. But the, the word devil actually isn't even a name. It's, it's a title. It, it is this uh, word diabolos, which means to be slanderous or falsely accusing. And that one of the tactics that this enemy of God and the people he loves does is he writes slanders. He misrepresents the truth. And the first person that he slanders in the Bible is actually God. 
right? He actually slanders God's character, causing us to question whether or not God is looking out for our best interest, all right? And so that's one of the things he does, and he continues to do that. In the New Testament, it refers to him as the accuser of the brethren, right? To bring us, followers of Jesus, into a place of feeling condemned because of when we fail and we need forgiveness, right? That he would rather remind us of our sin uh, than allow us to remember God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, that we would walk in forgiveness of sin with no condemnation and then over time become more and more like Jesus. But it's interesting here in this passage is that, right, people accuse Jesus of lying when in fact he's the only one telling the truth. I think it's in uh, the book of Romans, Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar, right? right? So like in terms of like the Christian worldview, that's what we tend to believe is that God tells the truth and then we fail to do so, okay? But, but check this out, believing a lie, in case you uh, haven't yet bought into it, is, is that uh, believing a lie is incredibly destructive, more so than any disease right, more so than anything that has ever plagued humanity. In in the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, it says this, verse 1. I'm going to quickly read this right here. Uh, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made, right? He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, right? The first thing we see this character in the Bible doing is accusing God of either lying or he's misrepresenting, he's misquoting what God said, because that's not what God said. Verse two, it says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, right? Like God didn't say we can't eat any fruit. That's not what God said. Uh, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Right? He's presenting an alternative reality. He's claiming that what God has said is true is not. Right? And he's saying this is in fact the case. And then he actually slanders God's character. Check this out, verse 5. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so from the beginning, this enemy has lied to humanity and we've believed him. Right? Choosing to actually consider the fact that God, our loving Father and Creator, has lied to us and is holding back good from us. Right? That's what like, we've chosen to believe. And as a result of believing this, right, Adam and Eve brought into the world sin and death and sickness. Right? All chaos and disorder was brought into the world as a result of believing a lie. That's the origin of it. All right, and so when Jesus enters into the world, yes, he goes around healing the sick, casting out demons, right, raising the dead. But the most significant thing he does to dismantle the kingdom of the enemy is proclaim truth, to correct a lie, and to bring us back into clear understanding of who God is and how he loves us and, right, who we are in him. And the enemy knows that this truth has the greatest potential to changing and bringing about life in humanity and bringing light to the world. The enemy knows this 
Because when Jesus shares in the four seed parable, he says that the word of God is like this farmer who's casting seed on the ground. And he talks about four types of soil that the seed lands upon. And check this out in Luke chapter 8, foreshadowing. We'll get there eventually. Uh, Verse 11, it says Jesus explaining his parable. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And the ones along the path are those who heard And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. That the enemy, the one who is opposed to God and the kids he loves, right, chooses to attack the word of God. That's one of his primary targets because he realizes that if we receive that word, we would believe it and be saved. And an enemy, right, an opposing army does not always attack, right, these primary targets of, right, soldiers and military forces. They may oftentimes attack the supply line to either starve out a city, right, forcing their surrender. And that's what our enemy does. He targets the word of God so that we wouldn't believe it and be saved, right? He chooses to attack the truth knowing that's his greatest means for starving us out. And so Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus responds with truth, right? Jesus shows up and teaches with authority. And you might be like, well, but Brian, but Jesus isn't here anymore. Like, I'd really like to hear Jesus preach. Like, Brian, we like your preaching, but could we have Jesus come one Sunday and just like, no offense to you, like, let's have Jesus teach, right? And, and yeah, that would be awesome, right? <laughs> yeah, I, here you go, sir, <laughs> right? Like, Absolutely. Uh, But this is an interesting thing. Jesus still cares for his people and his church today, even though he's ascended into heaven. That Jesus still wants truth to be taught. It says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he, that is Jesus, gave, right? These are gifts that God gives to us, the body of believers. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Right? One of the ways that Jesus still blesses his kids, that he still uh, feeds his church, right, is he gives those who teach. All right? And, like, I realize that's weird for me to say. It's like I'm, I'm not trying to say, like, Brian is this gift of God to you, okay? Like, that's not what I'm leveraging here. But I want to suggest to us that Jesus gives us, all of us, me included, that when I get to listen to scriptures or listen to sermons on my commute to work during the week and hear pastors and teachers from all over the world, or when I get to hear, right, Joe or Dan teach up here on a Sunday, like, I also get to benefit from this. So it's not just like, me making some weird like power play saying, look how great I am, all right? But, but notice this, the reason Jesus gave us these gifts is so that we could be equipped to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, right? Jesus gives us these gifts so that we can continue to learn what he says in his word, so we can know what he is like, that we can further know Jesus, right? To a mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. So Jesus still cares for his church this way. Check out verse 14. And one of the reasons that this is so significant is so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Right? Jesus gives us his word. He gives us those who teach so that we can grow and so we don't get just tossed around and wrecked and tricked and deceived and fall for every lie that would come our way. And he does this because he cares for us. Right? Because he loves us. Because he has compassion for us that he gives us his word. And check this out. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So let's pause on that. Speaking the truth in love. Right? Hopefully we as Christians follow the same pattern that Jesus did in speaking the truth in love. Right? Jesus, as uh, John chapter 1 says, was full of grace and truth. Right? And like that's the balance we want to hit. Right? That's the, the line we want to walk on is to, to be able to present the truth in all of its fullness, even when it cuts, right? even when it hurts, right? even when it prunes, as Greg read today. Right? We want to present the truth, but we want to do it in a way that loves people, the way that Jesus did, where he was moved with compassion when he taught the truth. And if we do that out of balance, we'll have all truth and no love. We'll be like the Pharisees who Jesus said, lay all of these laws upon people and not even lift a finger to try to help them out. Right? That's like a loveless truth. And actually, in their case, many of their laws were, were man-made traditions and laws which weren't even what God wanted us to do. Right? Or we will be a, a group of people that is all love but afraid to tell the truth. Right? Where we'll uh, cajole people and comfort them into believing a lie that is bringing about their destruction. Right? Because, oh, well, I, I don't want them to not feel loved in this moment. Right? And that's like this tricky balance for us, right? But check this out. There's more in that passage, but we're going to skip it for now. Teachers of the Bible are to do it in such a way, to teach the Word of God, that they're not altering it. That they're not twisting the Word of God. And, and in fact, like, we're warned in the Bible that people have been doing so for thousands of years. So, like, we need to acknowledge, like, there's a real temptation for anyone teaching the Bible to tweak it, to alter it, to dodge the difficult parts, right? To make it more appealing to our flesh. And even the Apostle Paul, like, he acknowledged this was a struggle for him. Right? Like, he's like, listen, like, I, in Acts chapter 20, he says, I did not shrink back, right? Like, as in, like, a cowardly, like, you know, cowering away from doing so. Uh, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Right? That he's like, listen, there was this temptation in him to be a pleaser of man rather than a pleaser of God. That he himself had to wrestle with this. And as he's teaching the elders in the church in Ephesus, he's like, listen, like Jesus himself shed his blood for this church, right? And you are now being placed to care for it and shepherd it as under shepherds. And he says, you need to make sure you don't shrink back from declaring the full counsel of God because of this. Paul said, if I did that, I would have innocent blood on my hands, right? That teachers of God's word, 
If we choose to dodge, if we choose to twist, if we choose to take out of context in such a way that it allows lies to be unexposed, blood is on our hands. Blood is on our hands. Right? And so, like, that's like a lot of weight and responsibility as a pastor. And fortunately, right, I've got a leadership team that helps me hold to that, right, which makes it a little bit easier that I'm not just by myself in this. Uh, but this is something that's interesting is Paul taught in this way. He acknowledged this temptation, all right? And that's something real to consider. In fact, right, teachers of the Bible, I want to suggest, right, we might be tempted to do what in modern times is called fan service. Right, where I'm just gonna like write the story or the little moment, the scene, put the characters that you wanted together, and like, hey, look at there's the thing that all the fans have been asking for for decades. Right? Like here's the thing that all of us would be happy to hear about. Right? That we as humans have the tendency to want to raise up for ourselves teachers that will tickle our ears, the Bible says. Right? To teach us the things that we want to hear that right, allow us to pursue our own desires. All right, so this is something that's, that's difficult, right? And let's see, let's jump to uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read one verse, even though I've got more. You can go check it out on your own time. Like, I'm not hiding the Bible from you guys. You guys can read it during the week. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. The reason preaching the truth is so important is because if we're not preaching the truth, like, why are we wasting our time? <laughs> like, what are we doing here, right? Uh, Paul writes this. He says, And if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Later on, he goes to describe it as being futile and that we as Christians, if Jesus is not in fact raised from the dead, are the most pitiful people on the planet. All right? Like, Paul's saying, like, what's the point if this isn't true? Like, why are we getting together why are we proclaiming this? Why are we sending out this good news into the world if we don't think it's true? Right? That, that why would we preach something other than the truth of God's word? Because then it's futile. Right? Our preaching would be a waste of time and all of our belief would be a waste of effort. Because the issue is this, that right, faith uh, in itself is useless if the object of our faith can, in fact, uh, not save us. Right, right? Like the object of our faith is what matters. Like we need to have faith and believe and trust God. Because in the Bible, that's what the word faith means. Don't let like the religious soundiness of it confuse us. To have faith in God is to believe God. Not to just merely believe in God, which we should do, but to believe God's word. All right? And that's, that's an important thing, right? We want to make sure we're not misrepresenting who God is is what Paul also says in that passage. And in fact, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis just because. Uh, he says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Right? So it's, it's one, of the, like one of the two extremes. Either it's a waste of our time or it's the thing we should be investing all of who we are into. 